Well, think with me this morning about a situation. For, uh, for most of you, this will be a, a hypothetical situation. For some of you, this is a situation that may have happened to you at, at some point along the way in your life. Here's the situation. You've been working in one place for a long time. You've worked your way uh, in this company to the point where you've been now given certain responsibilities. In fact, you might even have some people, you do have some people that work under you, even while you also work under someone else. But this job, this place, this company is a place where you now feel comfortable. You've been there for such a long time that it's, that it's a place that gives you uh, comfort. It's a job where you know your responsibilities. It's a job where you, have, uh, where you know you're comfortable in your routine. Now, you might not actually enjoy the job. After all, it is a job. But you're comfortable there. You're, you're clear on your expectations, and the people that work under you know their expectations. You just know what you're supposed to be doing. Now, suppose all of a sudden that all gets turned upside down. Someone new has joined your company. But this person, even though they're new, starts throwing their weight around. They start saying things like, that old way of doing things won't work anymore. We're going to start doing things different around here. How are you going to react to something, to someone like that? I imagine you'd probably not be very welcoming. You'd be upset. You might even start to see that person as a threat. Now, in most places, leadership types will say that when they start at a new company, it's generally not a good idea to start making changes very quickly. You need to get to know the company first, and you need to get to know and strike up a relationship with the employees. And only then do you very slowly start to implement changes. If you go in like a bowl in a china shop, you'll quickly alienate the people and they just plain won't like you. Well, in Mark 2, we have a situation in which Jesus walks into a place where his very presence brings change. It means that things will not be the same around here anymore. He turns everything upside down. But number one, the religious situation where he came into needed to be changed. And number two, he's not an ordinary person. He is Jesus. He's God. And the changes that he brings are right and are perfect and are timely. This was, after all, as Galatians 4.4 4, 4 says, the fullness of time. This was the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world and it called for a new way now of doing things. And so, as we saw in chapter 1 of Mark, Jesus comes into this world, comes into the situation which he ministers there in Galilee with a new authority. People were amazed at how he taught with authority we already read about. But just because he did that, and just because this authority was new, doesn't mean that his teaching always met with a happy reception. Not everyone was amazed. There was a, a mounting hostility. But look at where the opposition comes from. It came from the religious authorities, ironically, of the day. 
the old authorities saw this new authority as a threat. And in chapter 2, we'll notice that this conflict starts to come to a boil. In chapter 1, the scribes are, are kind of absent or, or they're on the sidelines. Jesus is dealing with unclean spirits and he's healing people and he's drawing in a crowd. But when we get to chapter 2, the fact that he's attracting crowds and teaching with this new authority gets the attention of the present-day authorities who are the scribes and the Pharisees. So we're going to start to see in this chapter that Jesus attracts two kinds of people. He attracts a response of faith from some, but he also attracts a response of opposition and, and conflict and controversy from those who see him as a threat to blow up the very system that they got comfortable in. And so as we're getting started here in Mark, we start to notice this trend. The things that Jesus says and the things that Jesus does all demand a response. People will always respond either by trusting him as their only hope for rescue from their old condition, or they respond by, let's get rid of this guy, by casting him away. Well, in chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3, we'll see both those responses. But the emphasis in this section here is on the mounting conflict that shows up wherever Jesus does something. And in these stories, Jesus starts to penetrate and dissect the hearts of those very people that oppose him. Mark reports on five incidents here in this section. The common groups in each section are Jesus and his disciples on the one hand, and then the scribes and Pharisees and the religious authorities on the other hand. And the pattern is basically the same in all five stories. In all five stories, the religious leaders question something that Jesus or his disciples do or something that they say. There's this escalating tension that starts to happen just in these five stories, so much so that by the end of the section, the leaders actually put out a contract on Jesus' life. And this is only the beginning of his ministry. So let's walk through these five stories, and then we'll find out what applications we can draw out. But as we do that, remember that all these stories point to greater realities. They point to the fact that Jesus is the gospel, and that he has come to preach a gospel that calls people to repent and believe in him. That's what all of Mark is about. Well, first, there's a question about authority to forgive sins. In the first story there at the beginning of Mark 2, we find Jesus preaching a word in a home. He's in a town called Capernaum, and he just, just describes him there as preaching the word. And we see that this hope, home was filled right up. If you went to, uh, to Sunday school, this is one of those stories that that you remember. Paralytic, can't get in because the house is full. So the four guys that are with him, they, they, uh, they have him on a bed there. They cut a hole in the roof and then they lower him down into this meeting where Jesus is, down from the top, from the roof. But it is, it's in the details of this story that, that we see a response of faith and also a response of suspicion. The proper way to respond to Jesus comes from the men 
that are carrying this paralyzed man and, and probably even from the paralyzed man himself. It says that Jesus saw their faith. These men trusted that Jesus alone could do something for this man. And they acted on that trust by making sure that no obstacles, including the crowd, would get in their way of this man seeing Jesus. And so look what they do. They do three things there in verse 4. It says they removed the roof, they made an opening, they let down the bed. That describes perseverance. And that describes faith. They knew Jesus could do something for this man. And then Jesus says something that's kind of surprising. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's not what we're expecting here, is it? We expect Jesus to heal the man's paralysis. But Jesus knew the man's real need. This man needed forgiveness of sins first and foremost. These four men and the paralytic might have known that too. And so they, they trusted that Jesus was able to heal this man's deepest need. That's the kind of faith that Jesus wants. A faith that trusts that Jesus can do what no one else can. Namely, forgive sins. That's the kind of faith that's necessary from anyone that would come to him. That Jesus can deal with our greatest need as humans. But those words of Jesus also caught the attention of some other people who just happened to be in that room. And then the the story now shifts to focus on them. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Imagine that. A packed room. Everyone probably standing trying to hear from Jesus. And you've got these scribes sitting there. Not lifting a finger to help. Probably a little bit upset that they got dirt on their nice robes from the guys that were cutting through the the mud roof on top. And they start questioning Jesus. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It seems here that Jesus' words to the paralytic might have had another purpose, which was to address the scribes. And that's exactly what he, do, what he does. Look at verse 8. It says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, God, saying, we never saw anything like that. Now, they're right when they say that only God can forgive sins. They knew their Bible. What, they knew what we have now as the Old Testament. But here was this man, as they call him, saying he was able to do what only God could do. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. And blasphemy was punishable by death. 
But that's exactly the outrageous claim that Jesus is making. I am God. And so just to verify his authority to these scribes, he also heals the man's paralysis. You can't prove that someone's sins are forgiven, but you can prove that a man has been healed. And so he came to heal spiritual needs, but just to authenticate his ability to do that, he's going to heal the physical need as well. But that just wound up the scribes really tight. Jesus actually proves here that they were the paralytics. That's what he's doing. There's irony here. He saw into their hearts, and he discovered when he looked into their hearts that they had, you might want to call it spiritual paralysis. They had dead hearts and needed, to be, needed those hearts to be healed. But their problem is that they didn't see their need like the men did. Instead of trusting Jesus like those five men, they just sit here all smug, trying to figure out a way to do away with the same one that they, in fact, needed to save them. Well, it's the same for all of us. It was the same for all of us that have now come to Christ. We were all paralyzed by sin, unable to do anything about it, unable to fix our condition. But Christ came and gave life to that which was previously dead. He awakened our spiritual muscles to be able to put faith in him. Well, for these scribes, they're just getting going. In the next episode, we have another question, only here it's a question about associations. Jesus is out teaching again, and and he calls a man named Levi. And from some of the other Gospels, we know that this man's name was also Matthew. So he calls this Levi to follow him. And Levi, just like the four disciples in the last section, he ditches his way of making a living, and he follows him. Faith, the right response of faith. But the scandal of this little encounter is in what Levi was doing when Jesus called him. It says there in verse 14 that he saw Levi sitting in a tax booth. And if that's not bad enough for the scribes, Jesus goes to Matthew's house and he reclines at a table, it says, with many tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees, ding, 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 ding. You know, alarm alarm bells start going off in their minds. And then we have verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here we have the same thing again. Jesus has gotten into the firing line of the sensibilities of the scribes, cavorting with tax collectors and sinners. Shameful. Tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society. They, they were seen as the people who, who sold out to the Roman government. They were turncoats. They exacted money off the Jews for the benefit of the bad guy Romans. And they were able to pocket a percentage of that money for themselves. To the religious authorities, these people were the lowest of the low. And we can understand that. They were kicked out of the synagogues. They were unclean. In fact, they were even more unclean than the lepers because at least they were able to, to, the lepers weren't able to choose their uncleanness. These people were. 
And so for Jesus to intentionally associate himself and indeed eat with tax collectors was unconscionable. It was offensive. It was disgraceful. It was scandalous. But that's Jesus. He'll associate with those who see themselves as needy. That's exactly what Jesus says at the end there of this section. It says, when, he, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus paints himself as a, as a doctor who makes house calls. But a doctor won't go to those who are well. He goes to those who say they're sick and who know that they need to be made well. They need a physician. They need a savior, a rescuer. But in saying that, Jesus gets right in the face of the scribes and the Pharisees and he turns the situation right onto them again, just like he did with the paralytic. Who are the real sick ones here? Who are the ones that really need a physician? It's those people who think they're well, but aren't. It's those people who don't think they need a physician, who need him the most, but are unwilling to admit their need. So which category are you in? I'm afraid many of us, maybe not even on purpose, slide kind of subtly into the same mistake as the scribes and the Pharisees. We tend to make judgment calls on who and who cannot be associated with Jesus. And maybe one of the reasons for that is that we don't see ourselves as needy anymore. We see ourselves as having arrived. We've done all that we need to get in. And now we think we're the experts on what it takes for anyone else to get in. Don't do that. Remember that until Christ comes again, we must always be repenting sinners. We always have to be aware of our need for Jesus' work on the cross, and we always have to be ready to receive anyone. Indeed, we must call those that need to come to Christ in repentance and faith. Anything less than that is evidence that maybe we're the ones who are sick and need a physician. Well, in the next section, we have another question. Only here it's a question about fasting. These, uh, these next two episodes focus almost totally on this rising conflict and on the fact that Jesus is now claiming a new authority for himself. In this one, we have people saying, John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting, in verse 18. And then they ask Jesus, how come they fast? But your disciples don't fast. Now, Jews were actually only required by law to fast on one day every year, on the Day of Atonement. But by this time, remember the Pharisees and the religious leaders added all these rules to the rules that were actually in in the first five books of the Bible. So by this time, the Pharisees were fasting twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. And they did it as a sign Many times, just as a sign, as a show of their own piety, of their own holiness. But their 
religiosity had become somber and joyless. This is what religion was supposed to look like, they thought. And as one commentator points out, if Jesus wanted to be taken seriously in their minds, he needed to be following this protocol. So what does Jesus do? What does he start talking about? A wedding. (laughs) The total opposite image from fasting. Talk about inviting conflict. (laughs) Look at verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus isn't against fasting, but this wasn't the time. In those days, after a wedding, the couple, the, the, the couple that got married didn't go off to Hawaii on a honeymoon. They would basically stick around and have an open house for one week. And anyone could come over for a week of partying and a week of eating. Even under the law, wedding guests were exempted from having to fast during that week. Well, that's the picture that Jesus paints here. He's the bridegroom and the wedding guests are his disciples. Jesus is saying that his mission on earth should be compared to a wedding. This is the time to live it up. This is what everything has been pointing to. Everything in their Old Testament, they've missed it. This is what it's been pointing to. The fact that Jesus is now here. The redemption is coming. Has arrived. During these days, Jesus would live and die so that many can be saved. During these days, Jesus was accomplishing the salvation of God. He was redeeming a people unto himself. This was not the time for the disciples to be fasting. But this image of the wedding puts just another burr under the saddle of the, of the questioners. Their somber kind of religion only proves again that they don't accept Jesus for who he is. They don't accept Jesus as the Son of God. And even more than that, Jesus is again talking directly about them when he says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Usually the bridegroom and the bride would, would leave the celebration on their own. But Jesus says that he would be forcefully taken away. He knows full well that those same people who don't accept who he is would be the same ones that remove him from the scene. He's talking directly at them. And then Jesus gives two illustrations there, illustrations about who he is. One about trying to put a new patch on old clothes, the other about putting new wine in old wineskins. Well, we could say a lot about those, but both of them make the same point. It doesn't work. The new will tear away the old. They both point back to that comment about the bridegroom being taken away. The new patch tears away the old. The new wine bursts the old skins. This is talking about the relationship between old traditional Judaism, this tradition that they had created, and Jesus. Jesus and his expanding, growing kingdom can't be assimilated into their old systems and their old traditions. He'll do away with the old system, but in that process, it says the wine will be destroyed too. In that process, they will do away with Jesus. And so the challenge is laid out before them. 
Will they see it and humble themselves and join the wedding feast? Or are they going to hold on tight to their pride? Hold on tight to those traditions? So this is not so much about fasting as it is about pride and humility. Again, Jesus is outright challenging them and they're just getting more and more upset. And then in the next incident, it just keeps on going. In verses 23 to 28, they ask another trapping kind of question. This time it's a question about the Sabbath. This time Jesus' disciples are, are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath as they're walking along the fields there, along the roads. Disciples see that. Wrong. That's working. Violation of the Sabbath rules. Huge no-no. Now there were two things that really distinguished Jews from everyone, everyone else. One was circumcision. The other one was the laws about how they observed the Sabbath. These were sources of pride for them. This was their identity. Rigorously observing these rules would surely please God. Or so they thought. And yet here comes Jesus and his band of followers outright ignoring their rules. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he goes right to the scriptures that they know so well and recalls a time when David was hungry and ignored the rules. David, of all people, the one from whom the Messiah would come, the one in whom they put all their hope that someone would come in the line of David. Jesus cites the revered King David as a precedent for what they thought they had trapped his disciples breaking the Sabbath laws. But Jesus does a lot more than that. By bringing this up, Jesus is claiming claiming again an authority for himself as the king who supersedes any rules. And then he claims in the next verse that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, outrageous claims. He was claiming for himself authority that belongs only to God, and that claim to have authority on par with God got the authorities even more ticked off. He was really starting to pierce deep into their prideful, performance-oriented heart. The Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was never meant to be a chain that outlawed all sorts of things. It was meant to be a time of rest that was set aside to reflect on all the blessings of God. And now when we get to chapter 3, the opposition has just about reached its boiling point. At the beginning of chapter 2, the opposition was kind of quiet. No one was really saying anything, even though Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. But now Mark says in chapter 3, verse 2, that they watched Jesus. They were trying to trap him. Now this is probably the same day. It's still the Sabbath. And there's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. Chapter 2 started out with a man with paralyzed legs. He could have been a quadriplegic as well. But this man basically, here in chapter 3, had a paralyzed, a dead hand. And so the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see whether he's going to heal him on the Sabbath. They don't give a rip about this man's hand. They're just watching Jesus. Why? So that, it says there, so that they might accuse him. This is going to be not so much about the man, this story, but about the accusers. He tells the man, come here. And then in 
Verse 4, he said, notice it says, he said to them. He doesn't talk to the man anymore. He says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Do you notice in the last three sections, Jesus is always answering a question with another question? Isn't that annoying when people do that? You just want an answer and they give you another question. But they never respond to that next question from Jesus because they know it's going to reveal something about them that they'd rather keep hidden. But this response is especially penetrating. It's going to get even deeper into their hearts than Jesus is already into. Now just think with me about this. Jesus' response here has two parts. The first part, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? It's talking about this man. Jesus is referring to this man. To not heal this man would be harmful, would be evil. Real religion will always have compassion. James says that, the pure, that, that religion that is pure is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. When we see needy people, we have to respond. Why? Because God has responded to, to your need by opening your eyes to see the gospel. And so we should care for people physically and ultimately their spiritual needs. If we've been touched by God, we ought never to ignore people who are in need. But... Look at what the disciples, how the, how the Pharisees respond. Verse 4. They were silent. They were silent. That just indicted them right there. For them, keeping rules was the priority. It was their sole focus. They were oblivious to any need around them. But they were also oblivious to their own need. They were also silent in part two of Jesus' rhetorical question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath not only to, not only to, to, to harm or to do, to do good or to do harm, but now it's to save life or to kill? Save or kill? What does that have to do with healing on the Sabbath? Jesus is again shifting the focus from the man now to the Pharisees themselves and asking, what are they going to do with Jesus? This is directed right at them. Jesus connects his response to the man with their response to Jesus. Jesus will heal the man, but how will they respond to Jesus? Answer, again, they were silent. They were silent until verse 6. They answer the question, but they answer it not in words, but in action. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. As soon as they respond with silence, it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. James Edwards is on the spot when he writes that the greatest enemy to divine love is not opposition, but hardness of heart and indifference to divine grace. These Pharisees chose to respond by killing the Savior. Ironically, Jesus had the power to save them, but they were silent. So the applications that these five incidents leave for us are many. For you that are Christians, there's definitely a challenge here to be compassionate to the needy. We need to see every person as needing the gospel 
and worthy of our compassion. So let me ask you, are there people that you would consider undeserving of gospel compassion? Are there kinds of people that you would consider modern-day tax collectors and sinners and unclean here in Wetaskiwin? Jesus models there a proper response with tax collectors and sinners and sick people. If there's anyone who's in danger of falling into the error of the Pharisees, isn't it all of us who are here today that have professed to be Christians for a long time and that maybe start to think we have some sort of entitlement to the grace of God? That we are somehow deserving and that, and that other people are not? That can happen very, very subtly. So be alert for it. Don't let your hearts become hard and become calloused. Don't become self-righteous. It's people that don't think that they need a doctor. Don't ever view yourself as having arrived because you can now keep certain rules. Don't deceive yourself, friends. Always view yourself as a repenting uh, sinner who needs Jesus, who needs his grace every single day. How will we respond to Jesus? If you are here today and you're not a Christian, let me just say, first of all, we're glad that you're here. You're welcome to join us anytime. But I hope these stories from the life of Jesus have helped you see why he came. He tells us right here, doesn't he? Jesus came to call sinners. And every one of us in this room is in that category. We are all guilty of breaking God's laws. And he calls those who admit their need and who want to turn away from their sins and who understand that Jesus is the only one that can deal with that problem. That's called repentance and faith. And that's the proper response to Jesus' call. Maybe he's calling you to follow him today, just like he called Levi. If you will respond to him believing that he is taken away your sin by becoming sin for you, as Kent read before, and by dying on a cross in your place, he will give you eternal life. Exactly like he put life back into that paralytic's body or into that man's hand. He'll do that for you. That's his promise from the word of God. If you want to know more about that, I invite you to, to come and find me and talk to me. I usually hang around by the back door talk to Pastor Wayne or any of our elders. They'd be glad to talk to you more about that.